Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn now to Psalm 9? Psalm 9. This summer, we're coming back to the Psalms, just as we have the last several summers. And if you remember back to last summer, we talked about how the Psalms are different than all the rest of the Bible. All of the Bible is written by God. It is His Word breathed out by Him. And the Psalms are certainly written by God. Just like all the rest of Scripture, they have human authors. They're written by King David and Asaph, and the sons of Korah. But like all of Scripture, these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, so that what they wrote is the revelation of God Himself. That is true of all of Scripture. But the Psalms are different. The thing that makes the Psalms unique is that they aren't just written by God, but they are also written to God. They are prayers and songs for God's people to sing and pray. And like all prayers and spiritual songs, they have God as their intended audience. He is their object. This is said so well by the church father Athanasius of Alexandria. He says, most of the scripture speaks to us, while the Psalms speak for us. The Psalms are God's inspired words given to us, to speak back to Him. And if you remember, what we especially focused on last year is that the Psalms ultimately belong to Jesus Christ. He is the one man who can truly pray and sing all of the Psalms. He is the true King of Israel who defends and rules and represents His people. He is the true blessed man of Psalm 1 who delights in the law of the Lord perfectly. Throughout his life, Jesus calls out to God in prayer and praise and lament and thanksgiving using the Psalms. If you want to see more of why that is and how that works in the Psalms, you can go back and listen to our first sermon from last summer on Psalm 63. And we're not going to leave that behind because that's true of all of the Psalms. All of the Psalms belong to Jesus Christ. They are most truly His And then, as God's people, who are united to Jesus Christ in His life and in His person, they become ours. So they are first Jesus's, and then they are ours. But this year, we're going to put the focus, the emphasis, a little bit more on the use of the Psalms. What are they for? Like all of Scripture, they teach us about God, and about ourselves, and about the rest of the world He created. They teach us about sin and salvation and the hope that is found in Christ. But the Psalms are not just to be taught or analyzed or even preached. They are songs and prayers, and so they are meant to be sung and prayed by God's people. God has given the Psalms to us as tools for the Christian life. Martin Luther, the 16th century German reformer, compares the Psalms to a training guide that a teacher gives to his students. He says, As a teacher will compose letters or little speeches for his pupils to write to their parents, so by the Psalms God prepares both the language and the mood in which we should address 
the heavenly Father. What Luther is saying is that we are all like children who need to be taught how to talk to God, how to pray to Him. One of our sons has uh, latched onto a particular phrase every time we get ready to pray before a meal or before bed. He'll stop us and he'll say, Daddy, you teach me to pray? Or Mommy, you teach me to pray? And if we're honest... That's what all of us ought to be asking of God. We don't naturally know how to pray rightly. But God, in His tender, fatherly care, says, Yes, let me teach you how and what and when to pray. And He has given us the Psalms as training guides in that task. And this morning, as we look at Psalm 9... God is going to teach us how to pray in the midst of affliction, of trouble. He's going to teach us how to pray when we are surrounded by our enemies. But before we hear from his word, let's go to our Father and ask for his help. Would you all pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry now for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today with the true bread from heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, cause us to long for Christ, to trust in Him and to follow Him in true obedience as we now hear your holy word. Amen. This is Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to the Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. 
Higeon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this psalm together, we're going to see it in three parts. First, we're going to go to verse 13 and look at the circumstances of this psalm. Then we're going to come back and we're going to see in verses 1 through 12 where it is that David begins. And then we're going to ask, where does my help come from? Where does David find stability in times of trouble? If you're looking at your outline, there's a fourth point there about how we can pray this psalm, but that's actually going to be throughout the sermon, so we won't have a fourth point just in case anybody gets a little nervous when I get to the end of the third point. So let's begin by noticing the circumstances of this psalm. And it actually takes a while before we see what is going on with David that has caused him to write this prayer and this song. You really have to get all the way down to verse 13. It's in verse 13 that David finally mentions his current circumstances. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. David is in affliction. Specifically, he is in affliction from other people. Here, he talks about those who hate me. These are people who are threatening David personally, but more importantly, they are threatening Israel, the people of God of whom David is the king. The other terms David uses for these people throughout the psalm are my enemies, but also the nations, the wicked, and the nations that forget God. These are not just people who have a personal beef with David. These are the Gentile nations surrounding Israel whom they are constantly at war with. These are the enemies of God who want to see the godly be destroyed. That is the cause of David's affliction. That is what has driven him to God. And the truth is that we all have all kinds of affliction in our lives. You have some affliction in your life that is common to all people, both Christians and non-Christians. Disease and sickness. This could be anything from heart failure to carpal tunnel, from hearing loss to lung cancer. Tragedy, the death of a spouse or a friend or even a child. Abuse at the hands of someone you trusted or a complete stranger. Financial hardship, from the crash of the stock market to that simmering feeling that things are going to catch up with you. Relational affliction, conflict with your parents, your siblings, your children, your boss, your roommate, your neighbor. Mental and emotional disorders, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, ADHD. All of these are the regular afflictions and troubles of this life. They are things that come out of nowhere and rock your world, or they are your constant companions, affecting everything that you do. 
But for the Christian, there is an added layer of affliction, which is what David focuses on here. It's the affliction that is brought on because you are a follower of Jesus. You are standing with God. You are following Him, graciously speaking His name and His truth. And this is a cause for persecution. That persecution can come in the form of physical harm and does for many in the world. But it also comes in the form of slander and mockery and even social or financial pressure. Jesus tells us that this is coming in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We shouldn't overplay this, what Jesus has just told us. Sometimes people don't like you, and it's not because you're a Christian, but because you're being unkind or obnoxious. We shouldn't use Jesus' words to create a martyr complex when really we just need to do a better job of bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we also shouldn't underplay this. 1 Peter is perhaps the best book in the New Testament to see this. Peter tells us that we will be mocked and scorned because we don't follow the world in their sin. He tells us not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us, and that behind all of this, Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. You will experience affliction in this life because you are a Christian. This world is not a world of utter bliss and joy. The Bible tells us what all of us, Christians and non-Christians, realize every moment of our lives, that this is a broken world, broken by disease and frustration and tragedy, and at a deeper level, broken by the presence of evil and sin. In all of this affliction, God has given us a psalm to tell us what to do. And the first response we should have in any affliction is to pray to God. You heard this around the time of the murders at Covenant School a few months ago. People were angrily saying that the time for prayer was over. That we don't need any more prayer, we need action. And there are certainly things to do in the midst of tragedy. But Christians are unashamedly supernaturalists. When tragedy strikes, we pray. When trouble comes into our lives, we call out to our God, who is the almighty God of the universe. He is the one who ultimately can and will do something about it. So we go to Him in prayer. But amazingly, in the midst of affliction and this broken world, David doesn't start with his troubles. He doesn't start with what's wrong. Instead, he starts his prayer with thanksgiving. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me again. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. 
I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. How shocking is this? In the midst of war and trouble and fear, what is the first thing David does? He gives thanks. He doesn't give thanks in part or in pretense, but with his whole heart. And what does he give thanks for? He doesn't try to find a silver lining to the cloud in his life. He doesn't say, well, things really aren't as bad as they could be. I should count up all the good things in my life and focus on those. No, he gives thanks to God for God. He is recounting God's wonderful saving deeds. He is glad and exults in the Lord himself. And then he sings praises to his name, which is shorthand for his character. David's focus in the midst of his affliction is on the joy that he has in having the Lord. Think about that for a second. Is that your natural response in the midst of trouble? when things are going poorly? For that matter, is that your natural response when things are going well? In the midst of circumstances that would normally strip someone of their joy, David proclaims where his joy is truly found. The 4th century church father, Augustine of Hippo, beautifully summarized this point of David beginning with his joy that is found in God. Listen to what he says. Not now in this age, not in bodily pleasures, not in the flavors of the palate and the tongue, not in sweet scents, not in pleasant sounds that fade away, not in beautifully colored objects, not in the vanities of human praise, not in marriage and offspring that will one day die, not in the abundance of temporal riches, not in this world's getting, but in you, O Lord, I will rejoice and exult. This is how God teaches us to come to Him. To quote Augustine again in his book, Confessions, he says, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in You. The true joy that you were made for is God. He has certainly made you to enjoy the pleasures and gifts of this world, but they could never be your ultimate joy. This is the only way that you will remain grounded in the midst of affliction, of those pleasures and gifts being stripped away, to set your heart on God. This is exactly what we see Jesus doing in his life, especially as he went to the affliction of the cross. Hebrews 12 tells us, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. His delight was in God and the rewards that the Father had set before him. We begin our prayer with our eyes on God and the joy and hope that are found in him alone. The second thing that David turns to in this prayer is God's past faithfulness in the midst of affliction. In verses 3 to 6, David looks back on the way that God had dealt with his enemies in times past. Verse 3 says, When my enemies turn back, 
They stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. We don't know exactly what experience David is drawing on here. But it doesn't sound like it is personal experience. In fact, it seems that David is talking about God defeating the Canaanites when he brought Israel into the promised land. And that is really important for us. Because that means that when we think of God's past faithfulness, we don't just have our own experiences to draw from. We are able to draw on God's faithfulness to His promises throughout all of history, throughout the Scriptures and in the history of the church. God has time and again vindicated His people. He has maintained their just cause. That doesn't mean that Christians never suffer. It doesn't mean that Christians never die. As I mentioned a moment ago, this isn't about your victory over your personal enemies. This is about God's victory over your true enemies. And while that might feel like a wet blanket at first, that is what we know we truly need. You don't need immediate relief from your circumstances. You need to know that God will win in the end and that you will be included in his victory. And this is what he promises. Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He promises strength in the present. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He promises ultimate victory over our true enemy. This is how Paul often ends his letters. I love this one from Romans 16. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The Lord has proven that he is faithful to his promises over and over again in your life and in the lives of the people in this room and throughout time. David remembers that faithfulness in the midst of his affliction. The third thing that David includes at the beginning of this prayer is the solid ground of God's character. He's acknowledged that the joy that is found, that joy is found in God alone. He has reminded himself of God's faithfulness to him and his people in the past. And now in verses 7 to 12, he focuses on the timeless character of God. Namely, his justice as the king and judge of the world. Look with me at verses 7 to 12. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. There is a God in the heavens. He is real. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And He is just. He is a God who promises that even though it may seem like wickedness is rewarded in this life and godliness is punished, even though it seems like the proud succeed and the humble fail, like those who reject Jesus prosper and those who trust in Him suffer. Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. He is not asleep. He has not forsaken those who seek Him. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David rests in the character of God. This is where David starts his prayer. And we must say that these things, especially in the midst of trouble, are not natural to us. When we get on our knees and start praying in the midst of suffering, we don't naturally begin with our joy in the Lord. And it's possible that that's because we haven't filled ourselves up with the truth of God's Word. Maybe you don't praise God for the joy found in Him because you don't know that in His presence there is fullness of joy and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Maybe you don't reflect on God's past faithfulness because you don't know the story of how He saved Israel from slavery in Egypt or the exiles from affliction in Babylon or the disciples from persecution in the early church. Maybe you don't thank God for His justice because you couldn't list off the attributes of God without looking it up. Brothers and sisters, learning God's Word, learning theology and doctrine are not ways to impress people at a party or feel good about yourself. They are fuel for rejoicing in God. They are ways for arming yourself for battle against despair and bitterness and self-reliance with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We must read our Bibles. We must learn the Christian faith so that we are equipped to handle all that the Lord puts into our life. After all of this, after beginning all this way, the reflection and prayer on who God is and what He has done, then David turns to his affliction. And what is the first thing he does with it? He brings it before God. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. We complain, and we look up solutions on Google, and we ask the advice of every person we can think might be able to help. But David cries out to the one who is truly in control. And notice the request. He has just talked about how just God is, how righteous He is. He will give the wicked what they deserve. But look what David asks for. 
He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. David asks for grace. He asks for mercy, not justice for himself. This is the foundational truth of the gospel. We are not people who go to God demanding our wages. We are sinners, and the wages of sin is death. We deserve affliction. We deserve suffering. Our plea is not that we are better than those who oppose God. Our plea and our appeal is not to our goodness, but it is to the grace of God's promise. God promises us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, the logic of the gospel is not that if you do enough good things, God will reward you. The logic of the gospel is that if you come to Jesus, he will save you from your sins. The Father will adopt you as his son or daughter. The Holy Spirit will fill you and remake you into a new creation. What is demanded is not perfect obedience, but trust. And what is promised is not wages, but grace. David knows this. And so when he asks for help, he pleads for God to be gracious to him. This is so important for us to see. Because in the midst of the hard days of life, we can be tempted to run to something other than that gospel truth. We barter with God. If I just do this, will you give me relief? We demand things of God. Don't you realize how faithful I've been to you? But in every season... Our cry to God is the cry of the gospel. We are sinners calling out to God, Be gracious to me, O Lord. And I mentioned at the beginning that every psalm is a psalm of Jesus. And as you read the psalms, when you think about the life of Jesus as you listen to the psalms, there will be moments that you catch the voice of Jesus clearly. You think about the way his disciples abandoned him, and you hear his voice praying Psalm 88. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. You think of him approaching the cross, and you hear Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. As he approaches death, you hear his confident trust in Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And it is right here in this psalm that we hear again the voice of Jesus clearly. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Jesus in his life came all the way to the gates of death. He died on the cross and went to the grave. 
But it is at exactly his lowest point that God lifted him up. And he rose with a shout of victory. And instead of the gates of death, he stands at the gates of Zion in heaven in victory. Brothers and sisters, this is always our only hope. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is not that God will deliver us from affliction tomorrow but that because of the eternal life we have in Jesus, our affliction cannot hold us. Because Jesus has taken our penalty of death on himself, our affliction cannot be the judgment of God, but it is transformed into the refining fire of our loving Father. Because of Jesus' affliction, our affliction too will end with us recounting the praises of God at the gates of Zion, and rejoicing in his salvation. I think this next part is so cool. Verses 15 through 18 turn David's confidence in God, his sure salvation for those who trust in him, but also his justice for those who reject him. David draws on this theme that is in the Proverbs and in Isaiah, and even in some of the narrative parts of Scripture. It's the idea that the tool that God's enemies make for the destruction of the godly end up being the very weapon that kills them. The tool that God's enemies make for the destruction of the godly end up being the weapon that kills them. David says in verse 15, The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. This is a theme throughout Scripture. We have drama camp this week, and the kids are performing the story of Esther. And I don't want to ruin the story for you. But in the story, we meet this nasty, evil man named Haman, who is trying to destroy God's people. And Haman makes these huge gallows that he wants to hang God's people on. You know what ends up happening in the end? Haman is hanged on those very gallows that he prepared for the people of God. Goliath comes at David with his own with his sword that has killed many enemies. What happens in the end? David takes Goliath's own sword and cuts his head off. But where do we see this principle, this idea, most clearly in Scripture? It's at the cross. The cross was the torture weapon of Rome, and it was the apparent moment of victory for Satan. He had finally done it. He had crushed the Son of God and put Him to death. But Jesus transformed the cross into a weapon that destroyed Satan. It is with the cross that he canceled the debt that stood over his people. It is with the cross that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Beloved, this is what Jesus has done to every weapon of the enemy. Satan intends to destroy you and devour you and snatch you out of Jesus' hand. 
But Jesus takes all of Satan's tools and turns them into his weapons of victory. Your greatest moments of failure and sin in your life, God has transformed them into displays of his glorious grace for the world to see. Your weakness, God has used to display his strength. And your suffering, your affliction, even that horrible weapon that Satan would use to steal and kill and destroy. God has transformed it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of your affliction, do not lose heart. Do not let this light and momentary affliction cloud your vision from seeing Almighty God on His throne. He will arise and judge His enemies. And on that same day, He will arise to vindicate those who put their trust in Jesus. So in the midst of your affliction, look to Jesus. In the midst of your suffering, even of persecution, God has given you this prayer to speak back to Him so that your faith and your hope are in God. Would you all pray with me? Father, we rejoice that the greatest joy in this world, the joy that we were made for, the joy that we were created to experience can never be stripped away from those who trust in Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful to his promises. And so, Lord, we pray that we would cling to your faithfulness, that we would cling to your promises in the midst of, of pain and difficulty in the midst of temptation, in the midst of doubt. Lord, we pray that we would trust in you, knowing that you are faithful. You will surely come through on your promises. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen.